Our scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. There will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It will wipe every tears from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then the angel I showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down in the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the street of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servant will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on the forehead. There will be no more night. There will no need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the love of God will give them light. They will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, This word I trust worthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspired the prophets and his angel to show his servant the thing must soon take place. Then he told me, do not seal up the word of the prophecy of the scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vowed person continue to be vowed. Let the one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash the robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Amen. Amen. And, uh, and the first things first, uh, Viva la France. Yeah, you know, that's why some of you are here. I thought I saw some of you normally in second service. You're in third right now because you stayed home to watch that game. Anyway, glad you're here. Uh, we're coming to the end of our series in Revelation today. And before we begin, let me just give you a sneak peek of what's coming next week. Next week, we will be beginning a brand new series. In the, wow, look at that. That's moving. Yes. Uh, the book of Psalms. It's called Storyteller. And it's gonna, we're taking a look at the stories behind some of your favorite psalms. So excited about that. And I hope you'll join us next week. But first, here we go today. You know, perhaps the most amazing thing about the Bible, I think, is that it's not just a, a collection of teachings like a, a, the Muslim, Buddhist, or Hindu scriptures, but the Bible, first of all, is a story. It's a, it's a great story, it's a big story, it's a huge story, and that story is not primarily about you and what you must do to find God 
But it's primarily, first, about God and what He has done to find you, love you, save you, heal you. And I think there's perhaps no greater piece of evidence of that truth than this book, Revelation, where we see in the final chapter of this great big story, the great big you know, uh, uh, play, so to speak, the great last story, we're shown here at the end what God will do to heal the planet and love the planet. What will God do to heal it? And how can we become part of that? That's what we're taking a look at today. So to see that, to see what God will do to heal the planet and how we can be a part of that even right now, I want to take a look at three tensions that exist here in the last couple chapters of the book. There are three tensions that if we'll look at them closely, we can see, we can understand how God's going to heal the planet and what we can do to be a part of that. So let's look at these tensions. First, we're going to see that there's a city, but a garden, that comes not yet, but now, through judgment, but mercy. Number one is going to show us the love of God. Number two shows us how it comes, how it arrives. And number three shows us how we can be a part of that. Let's begin here, number one, and look at a city, but a garden. You know, it's been said if you wanted to summarize the whole scope of the Bible, you could do it in one thought, and it's this, that the story of the Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a city. It begins in a garden, ends in a city, and you should ask, well, why is that, right? I mean, why does God, apparently, have a city for us and not just like, you know, a great cruise ship in the sky, somewhere or like a nice ranch we retired to or like a getaway car you know off the planet why is this it's because and here's the thought God loves cities that's why God loves them his plan for the planet this is showing us is inherently urban when the world is remade it looks like a city because God loves cities. And of course, if you know the Bible, this shouldn't surprise you. And let me give you three pieces of evidence, three cities to show you why. First example. I remember the story uh, of the Hebrew people when they were back in Babylon. Yeah, they were in exile there. Uh, They had been carried off there. Thousands of them had been massacred, their families torn apart. Thousands more brought to a city, Babylon, that hated them. And that they, the Jewish people themselves, hated. And yet the word of the Lord came to them, through the prophet Jeremiah, and said something that was shocking. The word of the Lord came to them, and it was this. He told them, pray for your city. How about that? He called the city they were living in their city. Seek the welfare of it. He said, uh, pray for it. Seek its peace. Seek its prosperity. Even the city that hates you maybe tries to kill you because if that city prospers, he says, then you'll prosper. That's amazing. Why is this? It's because God loves what? Cities. Yeah, you may hear that once or twice more. Okay. Second example. Second city. Remember the reluctant prophet Jonah. Yeah, he was grouchy, wasn't he? About having to go to Nineveh, the second city, because the Ninevites had hurt his own people in the past. And so he didn't want to go and preach repentance to the city. And you say, well, why didn't he want to go? Well, Jonah tells you at the end of the book why he didn't want to go. And it's awesomely hilarious because Jonah's kind of like the cartoon character in the Bible. No matter what he does, God gets the last laugh. You know, it's like the ship and the fish and the the worm and the plant and all that stuff. But anyway, at the end, when the people of Nineveh repented and God didn't judge the city, Jonah famously says, I knew it. 
I knew it. I knew it all along that, God, you were such a softy. You weren't going to judge them. I didn't want to go because, God, you're just looking for any excuse to love those people and include even the worst people in your plan. And what does God say back to him? It's incredible. It's the last line of the book. And the only book of the Bible, by the way, that ends with a question. God says back to Jonah and us so we won't miss it. He says, should I not love that great city? Why? Because God loves cities. Third example, third city, Jesus Christ on his way to die in the city of Jerusalem. He he knows what he's going to endure at the hands of the wicked people there, but he weeps over the city. He prays for the city. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He said, how I long to gather all of you together. I want to bring you close to my heart. Why? It's because God loves cities. Yeah, so we should ask, though. Maybe you already are in your head. Why does God love cities so much? And that all comes down to the question, well, what do you think real beauty looks like? What do you think real beauty looks like? Another way of asking the question would be for those of us who have kids, if you've got kids today or, uh, or if you've got a niece or a nephew, maybe that's you instead, uh, you, you can ask the question, well, whose kids are more beautiful, yours or your neighbor's? Yours and your friends, right? Listen, as a pastor, uh, I've gotten to see countless babies be born in hospitals. And it's one of my favorite things to go to usually because usually everybody's happy, right? I don't get to go quite as much anymore because we've grown. But when I go, I've never, ever, ever heard a mom or a dad say to me, well, you know, my boy, he's not much to look at, but he's got it where it counts. You know what I mean? say that no mama ever says about her daughter you know my baby yeah well you know what sure she's not going to be like on the you know on a pampers ad somewhere but we're hoping her talents lie elsewhere no no. why every parent always says even if it's not because it's not even if it's not objectively true my child is so beautiful I'm like no no, it's squishy you don't wrinkle my child's so beautiful lovely why because that child is made in the parent's image and so what are we right what are people we are the only things our father has made in his image which brings up now an uncomfortable theological truth of all the things that God has made he loves people most and best and where do most people live come on in cities, yeah, which is why God can say throughout the Bible, I love cities, I love Nineveh, I love Babylon, I love, I love Jerusalem, even though they're about to kill my son, right? I love them, my heart is to give them one more chance in the hope that they'll repent and love me and love their neighbors. There's so much of my image all piled up, gathered, concentrated in a city. Yeah, I love, I love nature, I love the countryside, I made the rocks and the animals and the sky and all that. I love it, it gives me glory, Psalm 19 tells you that. But I love cities because my image is gathered there in abundance that's why God loves cities and one day this is showing us he will bring his people to the perfect city perfectly engineered perfectly planned with the perfect food the perfect tacos some of you love tacos now listen you ain't seen nothing yet and by the way Jesus you should know what this when he's resurrected he eats a fish my favorite scripture he eats there's gonna be food in the new heavens the bible calls it a feast I'm like yes yes Some of you aren't celebrating too much a little already, but that's all right. (laughs) Perfectly maintained, engineered, provided for city. And yet here's the tension. 
Look at what kind of city it is. It's a garden city full of trees, full of uh, rivers, you know, plants. If you pull in the Old Testament prophets, there's like nature and animals there of all kinds. And what's nature doing here in this city? Nature is doing what it was made to do all along. It's healing the people, healing the people who live there. The leaves are healing nations. The river is causing people to flourish because that's what nature does in part now, does it not? And that's why we should not only care for nature now, the environment now, but we should connect with it now when we can because trees, rivers, oceans heal us, right, in small ways and help care for the planet now. Because that's what nature was made to do. And what nature was made to do, but can only do in part now, being limited and broken by sin, it will do in its fullness and glory to the glory of God one day. See, the garden city is the height of the expression of God's care for us. We need a city. We need nature. He brings them together. It's not just a garden, not just a city. It's a garden city. That's what God will do to make the world right. And it shows us his love for us. You say, well, all right, I'd like to live there. Austin's pretty great. Maybe I'd like to live in that city a bit more. I'm with you. So let's ask then, well, how, how does that city arrive? When will it get here? And the answer to that is our second tension. When will it get here? Number two, not yet, but now. Not yet, but now. The garden city comes, not yet, but now. And let me try to show you what I mean. Remember Jesus, uh, uh, Matthew 7, he's teaching a Sermon on the Mount. And he says to his followers, he says, my people are, guess what? A city. Come on, somebody, you know your Bible. A city. You're like, I don't know, there's a 25 metaphors. Morgan, pick one. Uh, but there's a city. He says, you're a city set on a hill. My people are already a city in like a small way. A book of Hebrews, same thought. The writer of it, chapter 12, says, listen, people of God, you're already in the heavenly city. You've already come into it. You're already in the heavenly Jerusalem. It's already here. Revelation 21, which we read, Jesus says, I am, present tense, I am making everything new. See, we're, we're the city right now. We've come to the city already. Jesus is already, in a way, making things new. How? Oh, this shows us it happens now when the people of God live now like they will then. When the people of God live now like they will then, the garden of city, the garden city of God will come in full one day and it comes in part right now. In this chapter, this is going to show us a number of ways to live now Bring the city of God closer into the city of man. And there's a bunch of them here. I've only got time for three. And you'll forgive me if these three ways sound really, really familiar to you. All right, here's the question. What kind of lives help bring the city of God into the city of man now? Lives of, first, we're going to look at worship. Lives of worship. Priestly worship. Look at uh, 22.4. It says this, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Uh, listen, this, here's what this is. This is a reference to uh, the Old Testament where the, 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 the high priest would be able to enter into the presence of God one day, one time a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he'd have the name of Yahweh written on his forehead. You're like, whew, I'm glad that's what it means because this is like a weird tattoo deal on my head. You know, more going to like tattoos, just not there. Uh, but this is saying, no, that every person then in the city of God will worship like that guy. 
like that guy. They'll get what that guy got because that guy, that priest, got to experience, it says, the face, the panim is the Hebrew word, the presence of God. What that one guy got, everyone will get in the heavenly city and we can have that in part right now. Why? Oh, because when we worship, it brings the heavenly city into our city. Many years ago, uh, when Carrie and I lived in Nashville, some of you also used to live there, maybe you've been, a great music town, but, uh, we attended a multi-ethnic church because we love multi-ethnic church, and don't you love multi-ethnic church? The answer, yes, you do, right? The second service was undecided. I had to coach them a bit, but you guys all know. But uh, we, like that church, like every multi-ethnic church does, it wrestled over how to provide a, a worship experience that enabled people to really encounter God from all, all backgrounds and, and cultures. And so this church, though, majored in types of songs and expressions that, you know what, I, they weren't my preference. I wasn't really accustomed to. And one Sunday, I decided I'd had enough. I was tired of the way that worship leader led or didn't lead. And I was tired of the way people acted in worship or didn't act. And I was tired of the songs they chose because after all, you know, I had played in worship bands for like 15 years. And I knew what every church in every city and state across the, 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 you know, the, the, the nation should do. I just, I knew that. But here's what led me that day to my breaking point. The band broke out in some like really old school gospel song where they clap on beats uh, two. And four, not on the one, and I mean, I can barely do it myself, not on the one and the three like most rock songs go. And some of you know what I mean, and that's why you struggle sometimes here in worship or you look a little funny. Your neighbor thinks you look a little funny because it's literally a new way of moving your body. And it makes you look funny. Anyway, the band was playing this really old school uh, gospel song. I was not connecting with it, just sort of, you know, uh, side-eyeing it. I could feel myself getting worked up, and then out of nowhere... This young teenage African-American male began dancing and spinning down the aisles, tears coming out of his face. And the crowd around him as he would go was going nuts. People were cheering, hands in the air. They were crying too. And all of this was so irritating to me. I left that day thinking, I thought, I don't know how I'm going to take it. I don't know what to do. So I went with my complaint, my righteous complaint, one of the elders there, and I went to his office and I said, what kind of songs are we doing in church? They don't connect with me or people like me. I'm defending on behalf of a whole group of people apparently at this point. Anyway, I said, what's up with the guy doing a whirly bird down the front? What's that all about? I was getting worked up and getting angry about it. And do you know what he told me? It was unforgettable. And he was far more patient and kind with me than I, I deserved. He said, let me tell you a story. He said, that young man that you saw going down the aisles, his father's name was James. And James had served in this church for the last 20 years. He was a servant of servants. Everybody knew him. Everybody loved him. He smiled, greeted here for 20 years. And last week, James passed away of a heart attack. He dropped dead and died. And he said his family had already been going through it because that young man that you saw had been far from God, had been wrestling with God, had been keeping his distance from God, living apart from God. And the song that you heard played that morning was his father's favorite song. James's favorite song. They played it to honor him, knowing that his whole family would be there that day in church. And as he said, when that young man heard his father's favorite song played, he said his heart broke free. And that moment that you saw him spinning and dancing down the aisle was the moment he decided to give his heart fully to Jesus. 
and the people you heard cheering were the people who knew what was going on. And to see him surrender his life to Jesus in the middle of all his pain and loss moved their hearts to worship. And he looked at me and he said very gently, he said, that young man whose faithful father just passed away just got saved in the middle of the song you didn't like. I put my head down. I, I mean, I cry. I did right there in his office. I'll never forget it. And I remember, remember thinking, God, would you forgive me for judging? I didn't know. I didn't know. I was outside of that whole moment, but hear me, not really as much for a lack of information as for a lack of humility. Because why was that young man inside the moment, though he wasn't right with God, but I hear this expert minister Christian was on the outside, not information. Humility, a heart posture. And here's what I learned that day. Worship isn't about you and what you want. Worship is about God and what God wants. Say it again. Worship's not about you and what you want. It's about God and what God wants. And what does God want? He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants my heart. He wants your heart. He wanted that young man's heart and he got it. He wanted my heart and he didn't get it right then. The question is, will we give it to him no matter what? Will we give it to him? And in a church like Mosaic, sometimes it's going to be the song that you like and the style that you like. And sometimes, maybe most of the time, it's not the song or style you like. And let me just tell you something. Let me tell you a little secret because, you know, like I work here and, and I know a guy here. And, you know, I don't always get the song or style I like either. Because, you know, I, sometimes I wish man, the band was just like a jukebox, right? Pushing my quarter and out would come something awesome that I would like perfectly tailored for me. Like, I don't know, like Daft Punk uh, meets uh, John Coltrane, meets U2, meets Mozart, meets Otis Redding, right? I mean, that would be awesome. Electronic, jazzy, classical, rock soul. You know, like every week that was what I would get. But worship isn't about me. It's about God. And when we come here, We come here for God. And by the way, one day when we worship in that city, it's not going to be the style or song that you know or maybe even have liked either. Not even going to be in a language that you've even learned yet. It will be worship from all nations and styles. And listen, all that's important too. And heart language is important. And those things are important to consider. But But when we do something here that's just a little different, just think of it like you're just practicing for eternity. That's all. That's all. Worship like a priest now. It brings the heavenly city into our city. Second, second way we can live that brings the heavenly city into our city is through committed community, through committed community. Look at verse three. Uh, John hears this. Somebody says, look, God's dwelling place. Where? Among the people. He'll dwell with them. God himself will be with them. So what do we see here about that city? Well, the, that city is the people of God dwelling together with God in their midst. And so when we do that, when we gather here in our city, in in the city of man with God in our midst, we bring a little bit of that city into ours now. And when we do that, I believe we are better for it. We're better for it. When we gather now, God comes, his power comes like an IV drip. It just makes us better and better and better. Let me show you one way that happens. And to do that, I want to talk to Really, our married folks for just a moment. Now I got to spend a lot of time with our singles on Friday. Amazing group. If you're single and you weren't there, you missed out. But this is for our married people. And I think singles, you can listen in. It'll help you too. I want to talk about marriage and divorce for a moment. 
Do you know what the divorce rate is? I'm asking this in light of this committed community thought. The divorce rate in, the, in, in America. Some of you are thinking it's 50%, right? Like I've heard it, I've heard it like on the news over and over again. If you think that, you're wrong. You're wrong. Corey laughed, I think. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that's all right. It's true and not true because of the people that are married. Here's the point. The people that are married to their first spouse, uh, 71% of marriages make it. 71% of marriages make it. It means only 29% of marriages don't. And in that 29% includes widows and widowers, people whose spouses have died. So the divorce rate is really around 25% for first marriages. Now, that's not as good as we'd like, but it's way better than 50%. Like way better. And that'll give you some hope because it means this. That, yeah, that all couples struggle, but most, the vast majority, make it. And so can you if you're in a struggling marriage today. But... If your marriage didn't make it, you're here and that's you today. Let me tell you, we love you and we're for you. We know life is hard. Marriage is really hard. Jesus loves you. He's for you. He wants to meet you in the middle of that. Whether you're single, married, divorced, don't forget that woman at the well Jesus loved. He went like a, like a beeline to her though. She'd been divorced five times or more. Right? I mean, Jesus loves us all. But, 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 here's my point. A bunch of researchers looking at this, they saw that stat and to their surprise, they begin to go down a layer and ask, well, what are the predictors of a great marriage, of whether a couple's going to stay married or not? And do you know what they found, to their surprise, was one of the greatest single predictors of whether or not a couple would stay married? They found it was couples who attend church regularly together. That's what it was. Basically, church keeps your marriage together. Now, that's not what church is all about, way more than a Sunday alone. And this is not a foolproof thing either. Some of you, you say, well, it didn't work for me. But this is the point. It is near the top of the greatest predictors of whether or not a couple will stay married. You say, why? Oh, here's why. It's because even if it's just for a few moments, there they are, there we are. We're gathered together with God's people. God's among us. And the power from that heavenly city begins to make its way into our city. And some of you, maybe even husbands, and by the way, these same studies show that men, your, your wife really likes it when you put your arm around her in the service. Some of you just did that right now. Yes, we need to be educated. We're that dumb. It's just... Of course, my wife was settled for just going to church with me. That's what she told me. But anyway, the power from that city comes in. And listen, and there's all the other sociological factors that go into it. Like when you're here, your family's prioritizing something beyond like your kids' sports or your work schedules, or your vacation schedules. There's a connection with people who can love you and counsel you and all that. But the point is that those who predecide, those who pre-commit to live now in a way like they will, then they bring into their marriages. We all bring into all of our relationships the power of the city of God. When we live in committed community, it brings that city that much closer to us now. Third way we live that brings that city into our city. We'll put it like this. It's passionate mission. And now you're saying, ah, yes, I see. Worship, community mission, our mosaic values. Uh, look at this verse, chapter 21. It says, he will, Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. Personally, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old orders past away don't you love this what's God doing here what's the son of God doing here he is going into his city going into neighborhoods wiping away tears and when we do that right here right now in our city in our neighborhoods we show that God is real that he's for the city 
And maybe, maybe people will listen to what we have to say. See, I believe that citizens of the city that is to come ought to be the best citizens of the city of man now, of our local city. Why? It's because we at least know in part what the city ought to look like, right? And that's why we get involved like we do when we can at schools like Live Oak and Deer Park, like you heard. And that's why we serve, for example, the homeless community here. Uh, one young man, a great story, who a few years ago, he was an alcohol addict. He was homeless, but through our, our team here, he got off the streets. He went into rehab. He got his life right with God, and then he became the leader once he was sober of his halfway house. And three weeks ago, he came up to me. He moved to San Antonio, but he came back to visit. And he said, Morgan, I want to thank you, although I hadn't really done much. Uh, thank you. I want to thank this church, the Kai Street folks, for what they've done for me. He says, now, after years, I've reconciled with my mother. Um, and he says, I'm sober. He says, I'm opening my great dream. I'm opening my own restaurant. The man had always loved food, but alcohol was killing him. Uh, but now he's free and he's serving Jesus there, making the city taste just a little bit better. Because again, I may have mentioned there's food in the city that is to come, right? And listen, this is why we also labor to, to break through all the junk of our nation's racist past and where it still is in the present and to help wipe away tears where we can of, uh, of wounds and relationships through things like our TGA work. It's why it's so important we participate and do this work in this city. And that's why, again, 20% or more every year of this church's income, we just give away to organizations outside ourselves, charities, mission work, people that do the same. See, here's why. Because one great question you've got to ask, we've got to ask, any church should ask is this. Would the city miss us if we were gone? Would the city miss us if we were gone? And if we can't answer yes, matter of fact, if the city can't answer yes, And if our neighborhood can't say, we're glad you're here, we may disagree with you, but man, we're glad you're in the neighborhood. If our our city can't say, well, we may not want to come to your church, the whole Jesus thing we don't like, but man, we want to hire y'all, right? We may not want to, you know, be a part of your group, but man, I sure hope my daughter marries one of you. Sure, my son marries one of you, right? One of you. If we can't say yes to that question, we may not be demonstrating the power of the city that is to come like we should right now. When will the garden city of God arrive? Not yet, but now. Through lives of worship, community, and mission. How can we then, though, become, oh, this is so great. How can we get inside it? How can we become citizens of that city? It's through the third and final tension in the chapter. We get in through judgment, but mercy. Judgment, but mercy. Jesus says, blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go to the gates into the city. You know, one of the most startling features of the book, and the last one we'll see, not just in the book or the chapter, but in the Bible, is that just as often as Revelation talks about the end of evil and suffering and pain, it simultaneously talks about God's judgment. God's judgment. And this verse basically tells you again because it says that those who have not repented of their sin, who have not placed their trust in Jesus, do not have the right to go into that city one day. And of course, over the years, many people have had a real issue with this, real issue with the judgment of God. And maybe this is you today because the objection goes, I think, sort of like this. The objection goes, well, how can the threat 
of coming judgment do anything but just make me afraid? How can it be good? If Christianity is just this fear-based thing, I don't want anything, I don't want any part of fear-based religion. Now, is this what this is? Just a fear-based threat designed to make you cower? Oh, no. I want to suggest to you today that the doctrine of the judgment of God, if you'll see it rightly, is not only the most merciful thing God could bring into the planet, but it's the most loving thing he could bring into your life and will make you more loving right now. A woman by the name of Shanti Feldon, she's a great Christian writer, thinker, reader books, they're great. And she tells a story about how she and her husband Jeff were really going through it. Their marriage was in a bad place. Uh, she wasn't sure if they were going to make it. And her next birthday was coming up. And so her husband thought, you know what, I'm going to try to do something nice for her. And so he, he started thinking out a year ahead of time. And he began to keep a journal of their relationship. And he decided that every night before he went to bed, he was going to write down how the day went and something she had done for him and how he he loved her. And the goal was to give it to her on her birthday the next year to show her he'd been thinking about her. And it all started out fine. Doesn't it always? Until they got in a fight. And that night when he went to go write in his secret birthday journal on his computer, he debated whether or not to include the massive fight that they got in that day. But he thought, you know what? I want to be honest. She wants an honest man. And so he wrote down all the ways she'd been awful to him, how hard it was being married to her, all of her sins and, you know, mean things she had said. Yikes. But the next day he began to think about what he had written and, and, he, and how he was going to have to give it to her one day. And so he went back and he noticed, which he hadn't noticed before, that even in just his own words, how mean and rude and awful he had said it. And so he decided to add an addendum, something like, oh, I know this happened, but you're so faithful to me. I know you love me. I know you love the kids. You take care of us. And so he kept on with the journal. But then when he came to the next time that they got in a fight, he started to write down again how awful she had been, how hard it was to be married to her. But instead, this time of waiting till the next day, He erased it all and just wrote in something about how much he loved her, how much he was grateful for her. And then after that, he noticed something unusual started to happen. He noticed that whenever he and Shanti began to argue, he began to think of that journal and how he was going to have to face the journal (laughs) that night. And he said he began to course correct right in the middle of the situation and the fight and knowing he was going to have to face a record of how he had acted caused him to be more kind, more gracious, a better husband and friend in the moment. And she credits that journal with saving their marriage. She says she had no idea what was going on, no idea he was doing this, and that he was changing right in front of her eyes, though she couldn't put her finger on why. You know why. It's because in a small way, the coming judgment of facing that record changed him. See, that journal, that record, just of his own words, just of his own choices, just of his own behavior, the record he would have to face caused him to change now. And therefore, in that light, knowing he would face that judgment was the most loving, most merciful thing that could have ever happened to him. It saved his marriage. Now imagine, if you really knew, if you really believed that one day you would face a record, just of your own words, own actions, own choices, motives, what would that do to you? I think if we really believe this, it would change the way we lived right now. 
And that's what, of course, the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the coming judgment of God is. It's merciful, yes, and that God's judgment will end evil, but it's loving. And that it can make us more loving right now. But maybe you're sensing the tension. Because here's the tension of the whole thing. This shows us no one can pass the judgment of God. No one's record can get them in. And yet, anyone can receive mercy. No one can go in on their own. And yet, anyone can go in. Anyone can receive mercy. Say, how is that? Like this. It's because of the one who left his heavenly city and entered into our earthly city. Jesus Christ entered the city of man. He came to his own people. He was the best citizen of any earthly city. All he did was love and feed and clothe and serve and care. But for all that, he received the worst of what the earthly city could give him. He shed his tears over us. He found out what death does. He lost his father, likely. He lost his friends. He was mocked and ultimately cast out and crucified out Outside the city gates, the ultimate sign of public rejection and humiliation. He was getting the curse. So now that we can get the blessing. And therefore, to wash our robes is to say, I am not good enough to make it on my own. I cannot pass the judgment on my own. But I can get a record of what Jesus has done. And the gospel is that that perfect record passes to me, though I don't deserve it. While my record passes to Jesus, he got what we deserved so that we can get what he deserved, right? God made him, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And when you see that he's done this for you, when you wash your robes, when you say, I can't pass on my own, but God's record can enable me to do that. Now, you are qualified to go in. I love how the old hymn put it. It summarizes Revelation, the Bible, beautifully. Maybe some of you know it. It goes like this. The hymn says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget That while the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. God, may it be so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.